Today's passage comes from Genesis chapter 37. Um, you can find it in page 18 in the paperback Bibles uh, under the chairs. Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all, of, all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around, around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept, kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, Hebron, and, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the, man said, and the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see, that, see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This is the word of God. 
Good morning. Happy New Year. It's good to be back. It's, uh, thank you for allowing me, uh, me and our family to be away for a couple weeks. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a refreshing time, and, but it's good to be back and good to open God's Word this morning. As we begin, I, you may not think it true to look at me, but uh, I, I want to tell you a secret about myself. I have been in two musicals. Uh, my first one was Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. I was a junior in high school, and it was a blast. It was a lot of fun. Um, I cannot sing to save my life, but if you drop the soundtrack, if Dan and, and Sarah put the music on, I could box step and step along with many of the tracks. I'm not saying, uh, again, I'm not saying that I can dance or sing well, but I, I, I can do it. But let it be known here that I performed my heart out. I gave it everything. And with that confession, let me just say we're beginning a new mini-series on the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. There are a few reasons why, not that I can highlight my singing and dancing skills, but one, we think that this will complement Rob's series through the book of James. Joseph is indeed a man who puts faith to action, even in the face of great difficulty. Two, we also see in this, in the life of Joseph, a beautiful picture of God's providence, his, orde- his ordaining and guiding hand of events to bring about his purposes. Particularly, in this story, we see how God's providence accomplishes salvation, transformation, and hope even in the face of uncertainty, suffering, and moments when we feel like God is really far away from us. And lastly, we see in the life of Joseph, just as Jesus taught his disciples that all scripture points to him, this story is no different. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in in, uh, the, the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. And so we hope to learn how to see Jesus in the life of Joseph. But it The reality is, in order to do that, we are jumping in very late in the game. This is the the last real big unit of the book of Genesis. Remember, Genesis is the origins, the beginnings. And so we, we see how the earth was created, but then quickly after we see how sin ruins everything, we see how sin and wickedness spreads all over the earth, and God then judges the earth but saves Noah. But even after the the, the earth is wiped out and Noah is reestablished with this this creation mandate to fill the earth, sin is continually rises again and is rampant. And God sets his attention and his focus on Abraham and he cuts a covenant with Abraham and, and says that Abraham, though an old man, nearly dead, he is going to have a son. And that son, through that heir, there will be a great nation. And that he will give Abraham and his people a a land and blessing. And that covenant after Abraham does have that son Isaac, and the covenant is passed to Isaac. And then Isaac has twin sons, Jacob and Esau, and the, the covenant is then passed to Jacob. And we see the promises that were given to Abraham, coming to fruition. And this is kind of where we're at right now. We, we see then in the beginning of this chapter, these are the generations of Jacob. This is the, 
the story, this, this phrasing is a covenant thing. We see that in the generations of Abraham, the generations of Isaac, and now we see the generation of Jacob. This is showing how God is fulfilling, carrying this covenant forward to bring about his perfect plan. But as we come to this chapter, and even as Sung Ho read, it should be clear that there is brokenness everywhere. It, the world is still a broken place in Jacob, and, and particularly in Jacob's family. And we see how they wrestle against trying to fix it in their own strength. And so that's kind of where we all are. We all try to, we see the brokenness around it, and we try to white-knuckle it. We try to buckle down. We try to straighten up and do it again. But what happens? We always just make a mess of it, as we see here. But the good news is that God enters into our brokenness and he works in his own providential way to bring about redemption and transformation through his covenantal promises. And so that's where we're going. We're going to unpack this in a couple points. I'll explain them as we go. But as we jump in, let's pray. Father, we ask that you would attend this time as we open up your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word to us, that you would, your Holy Spirit would, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. I have nothing to give to anyone in, in this room. If we do not hear from you, we have wasted time. Father, I pray that you would speak and that I pray that you would give us ears to hear, hearts ready to receive, God, I pray that your grace and your kindness and your nearness would be so present. And we pray that you would build up your church for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we jump in, the first thing that we see is that families are complicated and broken. I had thought about beginning the sermon this morning by asking everyone to stand up. Don't. But I was going to have everyone stand up and to remain standing if there is no drama in your family. You're all sitting down already. I know. I'm, I'm standing because I have to. The reason I, I decided not to is because, one, I don't want to embarrass anyone. But the other reason is we already know the answer. We all have some drama in our families. The reality is every family, some more, some less, there's some sort of strife, complication, brokenness. What we see in the opening verses of chapter 37 is a family fit for primetime reality television. Jacob's family could certainly keep up with the Kardashians in terms of drama. Consider for this family for a minute, they're a hot mess. One dad, four moms, 12 sons, one daughter. Just think about it. If you were actually following, if you're actually to read through Genesis, what you're going to see is that there's polygamy, wives vying for Jacob's approval. He's married to four different people. They actually, at one point, have a baby off. Who can produce more babies to earn Jacob's favor? Now, as an aside, some will argue because polygamy is in the Bible, uh, it, 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 is, it is appropriate. Well, the Bible does report about it, and it was a cultural norm of the day. 
What's also important to notice is that the Bible is so clear about the carnage that is left in the wake. Just think of the heartbreak of Hagar and Ishmael. David and his sinful pursuit of multiple, multiple wives that resulted in a divided kingdom. The wives of Solomon that pulled his heart away from the Lord. Not all that the Bible details is championed. It's just telling the story. But we see in this, in this polygamous relationship that it's outside of what God had desired. And it only creates drama, stress, brokenness, heartbreak. And we also see relational strife within the brothers. And you can imagine, whose, whose son are you? Brother against brother, and also children against the parents. Earlier in Genesis, we read about Reuben, Jacob's oldest son with Leah, and the oldest overall, sleeping with one of Jacob's wives, Rachel's servant, right after Rachel's death. It seems as though Jacob went away to bury Rachel, he's been away, and Reuben sees this as an opportunity to take lead of the family. And so he takes one of Jacob's wives, Rachel's servant, which ultimately discredits him with Jacob and then the rest of the family. And his leadership, as we'll actually see, never recovers. And then there's favoritism that Jacob is so blatant. Parents, we, there are our favorites. We, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Jacob is so blatant in the way that he shows favoritism. And it's interesting because he knows precisely the pain and the heartbreak and the drama that comes when the parent shows favoritism. Because he himself was favored by his mom and uh, so that he got the birthright and the inheritance over his twin brother Esau. And that tore them apart. Their relationship was never the same. His family was rent in two. Yet he practices this same sort of favoritism. What is on display is the full effect of sin in the life of a family. It, this is the particular people that God has ordained to be his covenant people. The, the promise of land, nation, and blessing has passed from Abraham to Isaac and has been reaffirmed to Jacob just a few chapters back. And as the narrator begins to unfold this story of Jacob's family, it becomes clear that the greatest threat to this family receiving the promises of God is the family itself. As we come to this chapter, it looks like things are spinning out of control. And this helps us to pause because one of the things that is most helpful about the Bible is that it's honest. This family is full of drama that is sad, cringy, devastating, and real. The reality is, is all of us have some level of family dysfunction and just general dysfunction in our lives. It's all too normal to have that uncle or that brother, you know, that incident that you don't talk about or everyone just understands in the family. There are fractures that are caused by the inheritance money grab, the betrayal of trust, neglect, selfish response, abusive language, abusive acts. 
Families are a mixed bag that are full of real people with real problems that play out in real time. I don't know about you, but it's easy to read about a family that lived thousands of years ago and even their problems and feel a little detached. It's easy to pass over, but the author here highlights the passions, the emotions, the complexity of this family because he's trying to help us identify with this family. Sure, most of us don't have a polygamous father. Most of us don't have 12 siblings. All the drama of this family, but we know it in parts. You know the pain of broken promises, moral failure, and addiction. You've felt the weight of detachment, and you know the, loss of, the pain of loss. You know firsthand the animosity between siblings, or maybe simply the coldness of indifference. You know the pain that is caused by someone's sin, as well as the fractures that have been caused by your own. And this is exactly what we see here in Jacob's family, in the story of his generations. We see a fractured family, a family on the brink of meltdown. And in the words of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4, sin is crouching at the door, and it is going to devour this family. Families are complicated and broken. We also see in this passage that sin hardens. The sin that is crouching is also, as, as this family leans into it, it actually works to harden their hearts as well. And it's this, dyna this dynamic, this, 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 how sin hardens is the dynamic, of, uh, uh, is the ground out of which this greater strife in this family occurs. What we see is that these sinful, painful family interactions are, are not addressed, but actually they're stoked. They're leaned into. Look at verse 2 and through 4. Joseph, being 17, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Those are the two servants of Leah and Rachel. And Joseph brought a bad report. Joseph's a tattletale. Let's call it what it is. He's a bratty kid. He seems to bring bad report. Not really sure what they were doing. Now Israel loved that Israel's Jacob. That's Jake, Jacob's name is changed to Israel. So the sons of the tribes of Israel. Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. Because he was a son of his old age. Rachel had not been able to have kids for years. That's why she gave her servant. And in order to keep up with the kids' arms race, Leah ended up giving her servant too. And then finally, the Lord was merciful to Rachel and opened her womb. And Joseph was her first son. She has Benjamin and she dies giving birth to Benjamin. But he had loved Rachel more than Leah and more than the others. And, and as a result, he loves Joseph more than the others. And he made him a coat of many colors. I don't know if it was technicolor, but it was many colors. Or some would say that it was, maybe it was just it with long sleeves. 
And this favoritism, when the, his brothers saw that Jacob loved um, him more than the others, they hated him and they couldn't even speak peacefully anymore to him. Joseph is Jacob's favorite son, favorite son and he lets the world know it. Jacob's radical display of favoritism toward Joseph stirred up in his brothers pure disdain. And because of Jacob's favoritism, he actually puts Joseph in charge. One of the reasons for the gift of the coat was actually to make Joseph the manager over the brothers. Like, I haven't been on many construction sites, so forgive me if I get the colors wrong, but this is like the guy in the blue helmet, the, the management guy, right? He walks around, and, or the white helmets, whatever they are, and he walks around to all the other people in the, the other color helmets making sure they're working. Then, you know, the management, the man, the dude looking over your, your shoulder to report back to the owner if you're doing your job or not. That's who Joseph becomes. He's the man. And his older brothers are likely in their mid to late 30s. That's where some of you are. Some of you have to do a little bit of imagining to go back to there. But I want you, they're at least in their mid 30s. And I want you to imagine that you being in, in your, like 35, 36, and a high school junior is now your boss. Oh, yeah, and by the way, he's likely going to take the lion's share of the inheritance, too. Joseph's privileged status concerns the older brothers because it threatens their inheritance. It threatens their livelihood. It threatens their future. And again, many of you know this, but in those days, and according to, to the customs of the day, the oldest son got the, the greater share of the inheritance, so Joseph's older brothers would have been considerably older, and Jacob is an old man now. They have worked and waited. Now this boy is threatening what they believe is rightfully theirs. In their brokenness, they're going to try to take it for themselves. In their sinfulness, they're going to try to latch on. But the last straw comes in the dreams that Joseph has. The one of the, the sheaves bowing down, the 11 bowing down to the one, and then the stars, the sun, moon bowing down. Uh, yeah, the, the, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars are bowing down to me. Namely, he is going to rule and reign over the family. These dreams confirm their greatest fear. Dreams in this, in this story overall, they play a large role in the life of Joseph. And just as an aside, it's always interesting as we're going to continue to read through the next couple, uh, uh, chapters, we'll, we'll see that dreams always come in twos. And, and the, the narrator, the, 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 story, the story is moved along. The story is always escalated by dreams. And so the emotions and, and the climax builds through when, when dreams appear. And emotions are escalated because Joseph is compelled to share these dreams. Now, what was his motivation to share them? It may be just joy. He was like, hey, you'll never guess what I dreamed. It was kind of weird. 
you should hear it too. It could have been like a humble brag. You know, like the dude coming out of the gym. How was your workout today? All right. I only did 500 reps. It was all right. <laughs> you know, maybe he's trying to stick it to his family. He knows they don't like him. They don't like him. Let's be honest. In my family, well, uh, let me, I'll be honest about me, and then I'll let you be honest about you. In my family, we love talking politics, and nobody agrees with anybody. There's six people, eight opinions. You know, so here's the deal. We each know how to throw the grenade in the middle of the, of the argument and walk away. And it's fun sometimes. Come on, right? You know how to push the buttons of your siblings, your parents. You know, if I say that, they're going to go through the roof. Maybe he was doing that. Maybe he goes, let's see how they respond to this. Look, Joseph is not meant to be painted as the ultimate saint here. He's a mixed bag, too. But regardless of Joseph's motivations, which the author does not tell us, no one's excited to hear the dreams. And the conflict grows, and we see that the brothers become jealous of him. His father even rebukes him. Is that really, dude? But he files it in the back of his mind, as we see in verse 11. Some time passes, the brothers are sent to take the older brothers are sent to take the pasture of, of Jacob's flocks and they take them to pasture in a town called Shechem. And they're gone for a bit of time and Jacob becomes concerned. I don't think it could have been connected to the bad report that Jacob was concerned. Maybe they were skimming off the top. Jacob knew how to do that to his father-in-law Laban. He knew how to take some for himself. Maybe he was nervous about that. But I think what is more accurate is probably that he's concerned with them being in Shechem. Because in Shechem, Simeon and Levi, a few years earlier, maybe as little as two years earlier, led a massive slaughter in, in revenge, in hot revenge for the defilement of their sister, Dinah. You can read about that in Genesis 34. So Jacob is likely concerned because of their delay in Shechem could mean trouble for him, the boys, the flock, which was their livelihood. So Joseph is sent to give a report, to check in on them. And Joseph dutifully goes. We see his faithfulness and his reliability. And now it's important to think about this. Shechem, from where they are, the Valley of Hebron, it's 50 miles now, Uber, he's hoofing it on foot, 50 miles. And here's the crazy thing. He gets there, and they're not there. And he's just like cruising around this field looking for them. And it turns out that they went to another town another 15 miles away. And when Joseph is given a job, he does it. And so he goes to find his brothers in Dothan. And that's where they are. But he will not return to give them a report. Because when the brothers see him coming, they plot to take him out. 
Sin has hardened their heart so, so much. They're blinded by their own ambition. They have no other options. Or at least they don't think they do. So they first, they plan to kill him. But Reuben stops them from murder in cold blood. Remember, Reuben is the oldest, and he tries to take leadership. He tries to step in. Look at verse 22. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into the pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him. Why? So that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. It seems like he convinces them to throw him into an empty pit where there were these like cisterns that were in the ground, almost like a, like a, a holdout cave of stone. This, they normally were made to have water. This one was empty. And it seems like Reuben says, hey, look, let's not actually kill him. Let's throw him in there, leave him to die. Something will come and eat him, you know. But he had a second motivation in mind. Reuben is probably trying to elevate his own brand. He's, he's likely looking for a way to regain favor with his father. He's looking out for number one, not Joseph. And, and we know this because the way he, he, he responds when the brothers actually, after they sell him, and Reuben comes back to the empty pit, do you, did you see his response at the end? It says, he doesn't say, what happened to Joseph? Oh no, my little brother. He says, what's going to happen to me? Where am I going to go? He was already on the outs with his father. Now he's like double on the outs. And in the meanwhile, in between that time with Reuben, Judah actually goes, hey, you know what? It's better not to kill him. We at least should make some money off this kid. He's strong, smart, strapping. Come on, let's make some money. And it just so happens that a, a group of traders are passing by. These Ishmaelites from Midian. And the brothers go, hey, that sounds like a good idea to me. So their actions are motivated by their hate, by their jealousy, by their desire to retake their inheritance. Sin has hardened their hearts. And the narrator throughout has shown us how sin has hardened and, and become like a stone in their chest. Their heart has become like a stone. In verses 4, 5, and 8, the, the author repeatedly tells us about their hatred of Joseph. In verse 11, that they are envious, they're jealous of him. In, in verse 18 to 24, they scheme to actually kill their brother. It is a contemplated thing. They ready themselves to take his life. In 19, they mock him and they are cynical towards him. This dreamer. They betray their own flesh and blood and then they lie about it. The sin has so calcified their heart, made them so callous. But it's easy to bang on these brothers. It's so, it's so easy to go... These guys are gross, terrible. But, so, but if we're really honest, so many of our own actions are fueled by our own frustrations, our own hurts, our own jealousies, our own fears. And we too so easily become hardened in our sin. 
years ago, like mid-2000s, I remember reading a news story about an, an astronaut love triangle. Bear with me. Has anybody heard this story? Okay. There was, there was, a, there was a woman who was in love with another, an astronaut who was in love with another astronaut. He cut it off. He started, fell in love with another naval pilot. In rage and in frustration and in jealousy, she packed up her car, drove from Houston to Orlando. She had in her car, her car she had broken into this guy's house, took, taken all these love letters between these other lovers. She had them in her car. She had a BB gun, surgical wiring, pepper spray. She drove, she, she followed this woman around a parking lot, tried to get in her car, ended up spraying pepper spray in her car to try to get her. I've never been an astronaut, but I think it's pretty hard to do. Like, you have to go through lots of testing. You have to go through lots of clearances. You have to pass a lot of psychological exams. I mean, you're going to go sit in a tube in, out in the atmosphere. I mean, you, gotta be, you have to be mentally fortified to do that. But in sin, in jealousy, what we would say is a normal, highly functioning person can be so calcified by their sin, so hardened by it, that they would throw it all away and pursue with singular focus their passion. It reminds us of how we often try to take matters into our own hands and to try to fix it. And we're do, we do well to remember what James says, that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But in their anger and in their fear and in their jealous rage, they become so hardened. And we see how as they lean into their sin, as they let it have full effect over them, we see how it enrages them. And we see how they fantasize and play out scenarios in their heads. I'm sure, like you and like me, when we're frustrated, we look in the mirror, we have that, that, that imaginary conversation with that person that we're not happy with. And we're always the hero of it. You talking to me? You know what I'm talking about? They fantasize about it. And it, it blinds them and so consumes them. And they take matters into their own hands. They're not even changed by it. They're callous at the end. They cover it up as if nothing happened. This is, these are the people that God has set his affection on and made a covenant oath to. But they don't deserve it. What they deserve is wrath and to be cut off. And I know this story is so familiar. Most of you and your kids, our kids are actually learning about it right now. In them kids. Know what happens over the next 12 chapters. God rescues this jacked up, wretched lot of miserable sinners. God shows grace and kindness to this group. I mean, at least the Kardashians have Kanye now. <laughs> but it's important not to rush to the end just yet. Consider the hardness of, consider the hardness of their hearts. And, you know... Jo Jacob is considered one of the, we call him one of the patriarchs. We're in the process of looking for a lead pastor at Maranatha. He would be cut from the list immediately. Even at the end of this chapter, um, 
we see no change in them. Look at the final verses of this chapter. As they cover it up, ironically, remember Jacob stole his inheritance and the, and the blessing from Isaac using his brother's cloak and a killed goat. His brothers deceive him with his brother's cloak and a killed goat and they bring it to him. And they go, Daddy, is this your son? They put like the visine in, you know. Is this your son? And he's wailing. Wailing. All hope is lost. And they come around him. Daddy, it's all right. All along knowing, full well. We did this. Cold-hearted killers. The reality is, is that sin unchallenged and unconfessed makes us harder and less responsive until we play any game, even a game of grief where there is none left. It hardens our hearts till they are like granite. That's what Liam Gallagher wrote. Sin unchallenged and unconfessed makes us harder and less responsive until we play any game, even a game of grief where there is none felt. It hardens our heart till they are like granite. Most of you, I think, know that I love Jerry Seinfeld and his show Seinfeld. And if you'll indulge me just for a moment, there's a common misunderstanding about the driving principle behind the show. Many will say it's a show about, well, that's popular, but it's incorrect. The driving principle behind the show was, quote, no hugging and no learning. No hugging and no learning. This means that there, in the show, there would never, it would never be about two people falling in love. You know, Ross and Rachel, Pam and Jim, you get it. There would never be two people falling in love, no hugging. But there would also be no learning. The, the characters would never develop into better people. That's why the finale is the best finale in television, because it ends with the very conversation the series begins with nine seasons earlier. There is no arc in their character. They are literally the worst people ever, and they stay that way. Their hearts are granite. It is de depravity personified. They are self-involved, self-absorbed, self-serving me monsters. They are us without the grace of God. They are this family without the grace of God. They are you and they are me without the grace of God. But thanks, thank God for his grace. Thanks be to God for his kindness. Thanks be to God for his mercy. It is cloaked in this scene, but it is on every line of the chapter. And that's where we're going to move to the last point. We see the grace and kindness of God. Have you seen it in this chapter as it was read? Did you notice that through this whole section, God is not mentioned, but he's everywhere in it? Do you remember the backdrop of this story is the covenant promises of God. 
The camera has zoomed in on this film family as, as they are the ones whom God has chosen to make into a great nation, to inherit the land, and to be a blessing to all the nations. They don't deserve it. God did not show them favor or grace because they earned it or because they had a change in heart. Rather, as Deuteronomy says, it was not because you were more in number than any, any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it's, it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Rob read that passage last week from 1 Corinthians. Not many of you were wealthy and, and, and strong. You can read it. God did not choose us for our goodness. He set his affection on us by grace. And the way he carries out his covenant promises, we see it is it's unique from the, rest of the, from the rest of the book. In the rest of the book, God comes to, to, to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He appears to them. He speaks directly to them, but not to Joseph. He appears first in the dream. And unlike the Egyptians, this is interesting to note, that no one in Joseph's family needs an interpreter. Because they knew that it was from the Lord. God makes it, uh, him giving these dreams beforehand and then having Joseph share them makes God's grace all the more astounding. The family knows who is giving the dreams, yet they still harden their hearts. But God pursues still. He enters into their word, world and works to bring about his promises. Secondly, giving Joseph these dreams and his sharing leaves a verifiable account of God's handiwork. He tells them beforehand why they do not know so that it, when, it, when it occurs, the light goes off. They will and, and they will have greater joy in the work that he has done. Jesus did the exact same thing on the night he was betrayed in, in his high priest, priestly prayer in John chapter 14. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. He's going to give the Holy Spirit, the helper. He's going to leave, but the helper will come. In verse 29, and now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. God gives the dream and, and Joseph announces it so that at the end, they will see that God's hand and God's hand alone has done all this. But God is more active than in just dreams. Consider the, consequent, uh, the, the, the coincidences. Consider the fact that Joseph does not go up with his brothers to Shechem, but only after a matter of time, Mile, a journey of 50 miles again. Now, <clears throat> In that intervening time, whether it was while I was traveling, the brothers go, hey, there's better pasture up in Dothan. Just, just so happens that they move on. So that when he gets there, no one's there. Right? And it just so happens that he's walking around a particular field at a particular time that a guy goes, hey, what you doing? And it just so happens then he goes, oh, well, I'm looking for my brothers. Oh, you should have been here yesterday. I saw them. You know what? I overheard them 
saying they're going to Dothan. Just by chance, he overhears where their plans are. And just by chance, Joseph just happens to meet this guy at the right time. And then walks his way up to Dothan. Another 15 miles. Timing is everything. If he goes right to Dothan, he misses the traitors. He may have just been killed and left in the pit. If he goes to Shechem, again, maybe killed, they missed the traitors. If he did not wander around, if he did not get to Dothan where he did, all bets are off. Chances are he's either killed or just beaten up by his brothers. But now he's thrown into the pit. Again, timing's everything. He's thrown into the pit. They have time to work their plan. They're cooking dinner. And Judah goes, hmm, let's make some money. There's some folks there. They just so happen to be passing by. And they, they sell him. And they're just so in, it just so happens that they're in, in the market for a slave to sell. The window of opportunity is so small. By a coincidence, this all lines up. No. This is a divinely orchestrated plan of God that he is bringing to pass. Have you ever looked over your life? Have you ever looked back and considered all the coincidences that brought you to this place? As I do, I realize it's spattered with the evidence of God who has gone before me, who's guided me, and has proven faithful. God is at work. And he does not leave this family in the hardness of their sin. Instead, he is, he is working to bring about their redemption. And one of the tools he uses is, this, is, is the hard tool of trial and suffering. He's going to go down to Egypt, and it is going to get hard. His brothers will have suffering of their own. C.S. Lewis fam famously said, Pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's a strange tool in God's toolbox, providence. But he, he yields this not for the sake of injury or harm, but for the sake of redemption and transformation. If, for not, if it were not for the suffering of Joseph and were the suffering of his family, there would be no redemption. Their hearts would not be softened. God in his mercy, like a surgeon, uses this suffering and this trial that is coming like a scalpel to remove the granite hearts in their chests. And he is working all these things according to the counsel of his will. And it seems like God is really far away, but the reality is he's active. His hands are in the middle of it all. Joseph, in the moment, did not know the end of the story. But by God's grace, we do. And we can read Genesis 50 and verse 20 with joy. As for now, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. But, but even on this side of Calvary, we have, more sure, uh, we have a more sure reason than just this example in Genesis 
for hope in the midst of hardship. Just as Joseph was delivered by wicked men, so was Christ. Or delivered over to wicked men. Jesus, in, in Acts chapter 2, is, Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God entered into our brokenness, and he works to bring about redemption transformation according to his promises. God is at work to bring about his covenant people. He's, he, he is at work bringing about his covenant promises, which he promised to Abraham and to Jacob. But ultimately, these promises are fulfilled in Christ. And this story points us to Christ's perfect fulfillment. Remember, Jesus entered into our brokenness too. He even entered into a family that was hostile to him. His brothers rejected him. His kinsmen rejected him. They, thought, they too thought it would be better off if he were dead. Jesus was also betrayed for a bag of silver and in his suffering. In his being handed over, he accomplished a far greater redemption and salvation. Joseph was delivered by God to deliver his people. But Christ was delivered unto death by God to ultimately deliver his people. All our sins are dealt with in Christ. And when we rely on him, when we trust in him, when we turn from our sin and put our faith in Christ, we are promised a glorious place with no sin and no suffering. The reality is, is that we're still in between the cross and the time to come. We're in a time of waiting still. And even those who trust in Christ experience the worst kinds of pain and suffering. In one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, he says, it ain't dark yet, but it's getting there. I think that's probably a good way to describe maybe where you are this morning. It ain't dark yet, but it's getting there. And I would urge you to be reminded of Christ's work as it, is, as it assures us and reminds us that though we may not see how things shake out, we can trust him. This is what Paul writes in Romans for, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I read an article a couple weeks ago, and uh, it was an article that was responding to something, I think it was in the New Yorker, about how, uh, about pain, and this uh, Christian writer, he wrote, Truthfully, the cross lessens my bitterness when I look at pain. I see Christ suffering, and I'm less angry at what he represents. I feel less alone. 
perhaps of equal importance. I don't always fully understand what I'm looking at when I'm looking at the cross. I'm, I'm reminded of the mystery in my humble position before it. I'm remen- reminded to look for God in unexpected places. I'm reminded of Paul's promise that suffering may become something as yet unimaginable, even endurance, character, hope. Joseph being led away, he didn't know how the story was going to turn out. He had to trust in the goodness and perfect plan of God. And seeing Christ crucified and risen, experience his grace, we too can trust in God's faithfulness even when the way before us looks really dark. And I don't say this flippantly, but this is what Paul says, that God causes everything to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. Joseph was called according to God's purposes, as was his family. He brought them through trial and a hardship, and it was a way that they were going to be refined and transformed, saved, and then made into a people. They would have to go through the humiliation of their trial in order to see the exaltation that was to come. That's the way of Christ, and that is the way of us that... that The road to glory is hard. But that God is at work. He doesn't just leave us and say, ah, figure it out. But he's at work in his perfect way, orchestrating it all for our good and his glory. And I know that might sound really trite at times, but it doesn't make it less true. This passage is for us to learn and to grow in our ability to trust God even even when he seems far away, because the reality is he is is ever present. Maybe you are where the brothers are today. Your heart is hardened like granite. This story is for you. My prayer is that it's a mirror for you, that you would see the brutality and the emptiness of sinfulness. I'd also encourage you to read the rest of this story through the end of Genesis. In this story, you will see transformation that can only come through grace. Do not harden your hearts, but instead, cast yourself on the mercy of God. Brothers and sisters, maybe you feel like Joseph being carted off to Egypt not knowing what the future holds. You know the heartbreak of love lost Betrayal, hurt, loneliness. No doubt there are many thoughts and issues that may or may not be resolved on this side of eternity. But this story, and even more so, the cross and the empty tomb assure us of his abiding presence. And even even when we don't feel it, Liam Gallagher writes this, one day we will see the purpose of it all, and rejoice in the wisdom of God, understanding that when we most thought he was absent, he was most near. We come to this story no different than Joseph and his family, bruised and broken by this world. Our default is to try and muscle it, to work our own will. It only complicates things further. 
This story shows us that God has entered into our world in order to rescue. In order to rescue and transform ruined sinners. In so doing, he's recreating us in his image and has knit us into a family that showcases his grace and his mercy. Let's pray. Lord, I we thank you for your grace and your kindness that pursues us when we don't deserve it. That is at work even when we don't see it. I pray that your spirit would teach us that your spirit would encourage our hearts where we pray for those who are broken and bruised. Lord, we ask that you would comfort them. For those that are in their sin, Lord, I pray that you would wake them from their slumber. Aliven them to yourself. And to turn from sin and turn to Christ, the one who has defeated sin and gives an eternal hope. In Christ's name, amen.